Praise the Lord, I am back. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. We will see how my voice does today. Y'all, I got so sick last week. Uh, It was was bad. And uh, so, thankfully, I am back on my feet. And uh, we got a lot to talk about. Talk about. Uh, so <laughs> I, I laid in bed for three days and binge watched uh, the extended cuts of Lord of the Rings. And, and I, I feel like Return of the King, Re- Return of the Talk Radio Show host uh, here at the Turn of the Tide. Goodness gracious, Iowa last night. I, I got to tell you, maybe maybe we should have worried about something. You got a bunch of Democrats in a room. Talking about unviable candidates, I'm surprised they didn't have Planned Parenthood on standby. Uh Uh-oh, this candidate's not viable. (laughs) Come on in, Planned Parenthood. It was just, it was bizarre. And then to have the absolute meltdown, let me, let me see if I can walk you through the state of play on this one uh, of what actually was supposed to happen. So what was supposed to happen in Iowa, the caucuses, the Democrats and Republicans do it slightly differently, and, and it'll be helpful to explain the process so that you can understand how the screw-up occurred uh, and, and be the smartest person in your circle of friends. Uh, Republicans, when you go into the Iowa caucuses, uh, they're proportional, meaning that everybody gets some level of delegates, but there's a cutoff limit to the number of delegates that can be gotten. And uh, the Republican delegates are bound to their candidate. Meaning when you go in, and and let's say, uh, let's go back to 2016, you you had all the candidates there, and uh, Ted Cruz organized the most, and in organizing the most, he was able to win the Iowa caucus, surprised a lot of people. A lot of people thought Donald Trump might win, and it was Ted Cruz. And you went into the room, and the people who wanted for Ted Cruz stood in one corner, the people who wanted Trump stood in another corner, people who wanted Jeb Bush stood in another corner, people who wanted, I mean, you name the candidate, they all stood in corners. And there was a level of viability. Uh, The viability meant you had to have at least, in, in some cases, depending on the precinct size, 15 people to be viable. And if you were in a group and you only had 14 people, you then realized uh, that your candidate was not viable. So you either had to persuade someone to come to your group or you had to go to someone else's group. And once you did that, you were locked in and you had to support that candidate. So if you were in a group, let's say you were in a Jeb Bush group and there were uh, 14 people, you needed 15 and uh, Jeb Bush didn't get the the vote, then you had to go to a candidate who did. And let's say you went to Ted Cruz. Well, then you were stuck. You had to support Ted Cruz the whole way through, whether you wanted to or not. The Democrats do this differently in Iowa. In Iowa, they've got the, the minimum viability. They've got a minimum threshold. And you can jockey for position. And in the Democratic caucus, you don't just have a first round. You have a second round. So with the Republicans, you have one round of viability. You better go find a candidate and stick with that candidate. With the Democratic Party, they go through a first round of viability. And all the candidates who make the minimum viable threshold get a first round pick. And then those candidates that don't have enough people, uh, they then have to break up for a second round of viability and see where those people go to add to the numbers. So you can see a candidate on the second round grow. Well, here's the problem. I realize that's confusing, but what's more confusing is that what Iowa has done in the past is they count who gets what per room. So Bernie Sanders is first, Elizabeth Warren is second, Pete Buttigieg is third, Joe Biden is fourth. 
And they've got a cutoff period for viability between what round one and round two, meaning that in round one, let's say your minimum is 15, and in round two, your minimum is 30, double the, the first round. Uh, so it, by the end of the first round, those people who don't have 15 candidates, the people who want to stay, reshuffle to other groups. And once they've reshuffled other groups, let's say Joe Biden's group had 14 people, so he was below minimum viability for the first round. Well, on the second round, he attracts some people from Amy Klobuchar and Andrew Yang, uh, and he's able to get up uh, more, more, more people. He's able to clear now the second round is a 30 threshold, and he's now able to clear 30 people. Well, Joe Biden is going to get delegates as a result of that, but he's not going to get as many as the others because he wasn't in the first round of viability. It is a confusion process. It is hard for veterans to understand it and, and to explain it. And the Democrats decided that they needed better, more expeditious, more capable reporting than what they had. So Robbie Mook, uh, you will recall Robbie Mook, if the name sounds familiar for you, he was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. He's the guy who heard Bill Clinton say that uh, Hillary Clinton needed to be in western Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and chose instead to uh, ignore Bill Clinton. That Robbie Mook, that Robbie Mook uh, decided that he needed to develop a software program and got Democrats to go in on board with a highly technical technological solution to a problem they viewed as a technocratic problem. That was uh, Bernie Sanders after 2016 did not like. And, and yet we got to circle back to 2016 again here. I'm trying to make it as easy to understand as possible. And it's still very complex. In 2016, Bernie Sanders did not like that they were giving out delegate totals. Bernie Sanders wanted actual vote totals. The problem is the actual vote totals are not how you tabulate, tabulate the delegates because Iowa has a proportional system. And so Bernie Sanders wanted three things. Bernie Sanders wanted the total votes per precinct for, for him. He wanted the mathematical formula to show how those votes would then translate with first round and second round viability into candidate, uh, into delegates by precinct. And then he wanted the actual total delegates. What's frustrating with this is that e there are 1,700 precincts in Iowa, 99 counties, 1,700 precincts, and you don't get a delegate per precinct. You only get 41. So there's a complicated mathematical formula that has to be used. Well, in the past, they've all done it by hand. The Democratic Party upended its process, and, and this, is, this is the ultimate point you got to pay attention to here. The Democratic Party upended its process after 2016 to placate Bernie Sanders supporters who believed Hillary Clinton had stolen Iowa from them. And they decided the way to accommodate Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, is not a Democrat. He's not a member of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party decided to placate Bernie Sanders by coming up with a software solution that was designed by Hillary Clinton's team to give Bernie Sanders all of the data he wanted. They never field tested the app. The Atlantic magazine actually had a huge profile on this from a couple of months ago that no one really knew who was in control of the app, uh, how secure the app was, uh, whether or not the app could sustain heavy traffic. Uh, it, it was never tested in a way, rigorously tested to make sure all sorts of problems. And so they deployed it last night. 
the president may begin his State of the Union address today, tonight, and we still not know who won the Iowa caucuses. That's how bad it was. It was a catastrophic failure. As a buddy of mine on, on Twitter said, maybe they should have unplugged Iowa and then plugged it back in to, to see if that would help. Uh, it, the whole thing was deeply, deeply problematic, and uh, we don't know. What we do know for certain is that Joe Biden uh, has a get-out-of-jail-free card because Joe Biden imploded. Joe Biden's whole campaign tanked in Iowa last night. Uh, Pete Buttigieg did better than expected. And uh, Bernie Sanders ran away with it. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was deeply impacted by it. Now, here's what happened that made things frustrating for the Sanders folks. So the Sanders people are really upset today, and they're yet again claiming a conspiracy. There are two stages to viability, as I mentioned to you. There's a first round and there's a second round. Well, when you get to the second round with the Democrats in Iowa, you can repetition and relobby. Well, they were dragging on so long because the, the data couldn't get out. The data wasn't getting to the state party. So Amy Klobuchar took to the national airwaves last night and began to make a pitch for herself as a second round candidate to boost her votes. Well, then that led to Elizabeth Warren and, and Joe Biden both doing it. That ultimately led to Pete Buttigieg doing it, which I got to tell you, some people, some savvy politicians last night noted there's a red flag issue there for Buttigieg in that he waited until after midnight Eastern time to come on stage and make a pitch for uh, second round viability. That matters because the people in New Hampshire were already in bed after midnight. They had given up watching, and most of the people in Iowa had given up and gone home as well. The caucuses were supposed to end at 10 p.m. Klobuchar showed a level of savvy there, and then Elizabeth Warren and and Joe Biden both ran out, and in the process stomped on each other. You had split screens for Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. It was a savvy move by Amy Klobuchar. It's not going to get her very far, but it certainly was a savvy move on her part. Well, the Bernie Sanders people are livid about it all. They're, they're, they believe there's a conspiracy. The Bernie bros are out to get the DNC. And again, the whole reason the mess was started is because they tried to placate Bernie Sanders from uh, 2016. It's fascinating, though, to watch a bunch of Bernie Sanders supporters upset at the redistribution of votes in Iowa. Now, we may never know the winner. It is a huge screw up, and it does not help that we are we are choosing a presidential candidate with coin tosses. In Iowa, you cannot have ties. In the Iowa caucuses, if two people get 20 votes and those are your top two contenders, then you have to have a toying, uh, a toying toss. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still sick. A coin toss. You got to have a coin toss. And so there were multiple precincts last night where you had to have a coin tossed to decide who the winner actually was, who was going to be first place and who was going to be second place. Really, really amazing uh, that that was how democracy had to be settled, how the vote had to be settled. And I mean, the Democratic Party and I was just this huge uh, black eye. This actually happened. I want to play for you this audio from CNN last night, Uh, an Iowa Democrat on hold with the Iowa Democratic Party trying to phone in his vote. Talking to Wolf Blitzer. Uh, we'll get back to you as soon as you have more information, uh, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, Sean Sebastian is joining us right now from Story County. He's a precinct secretary out there. What can you tell us about this delay in getting any results, Sean? Well, Wolf, I have been on hold for over an hour um, with the Iowa Democratic Party. Uh, they tried to, I think, promote an app uh, to res- report the results. The app, by all accounts, just like doesn't work. So we've been recommended to call into the hotline, and the hotline has 
not been responsive. And, and have I you, can have hear you gotten any explanation, Sean? Right Sean, now. have you gotten any explanation at all of, uh, as to what's going on? No, I have not. No. Uh, uh, I'm just waiting on hold and uh, doing my best to report the results from my what, precinct. What are you hearing? I know you're listening to a conversation uh, from the Iowa uh, Democratic Party. Um, so this is a real coincidence, Wolf. I just got off hold just now. So I've got to get off the phone to report the results. All right. Uh, go ahead. Report your results. Can we listen in as you report them, Sean? Yep. All right. Cool. Let's listen. All right. <laughs> okay. Hi. Hello. They hung up on me. <laughs> they hung up on me. Okay. I've got to get back in line on hold. Oh. Um, they just hung up. It's uh, so frustrating indeed. Uh, Sean, uh, we're going to stay in close touch with you. Sean Sebastian from Story County out in Iowa, a precinct secretary. Just wanted to report the results of the caucus there. And uh, clearly for an hour he was on hold, finally got through. And then all of a sudden uh, not happening now. <laughs> By the way, this, this, this didn't just happen to them. It, it also happened on MSNBC. Same thing happened on MSNBC. Uh, Rachel Maddow was talking to someone. Uh, the guy gets on hold, and um, they hang up on him. <laughs> they hang up on him. Meanwhile, the Republicans are out there actually aiding and abetting the conspiracy theories. Here's Rick Santorum from CNN last night. I think they've taken a situation that— How do you verify? It? Is it, well, I think, look, the, there, there may have been some problems in the transmission of these votes, but the fact that they're not providing any detailed information is— is a real problem for them because it just yeah. leaves open the your mind to to if if the, if there was a problem identify the problem right. yeah. tell you tell what happened here's what you know and give details to give confidence that that's what's going on but the fact that they're hiding the ball this late at night with with the campaigns and and this just has I'm sure everybody worrying that there's more to it than that and that could be a real right this real is a, this is a perfect problem. example of how not to handle a difficult problem yeah no kidding uh so the a lot of democratic voters believe there is some sort of conspiracy theory now uh particularly bernie sanders supporters who are want to believe conspiracy theories anyway they believe the party is aligned against them and they're not wrong on that uh, but this was a major technological problem last night. Talk about a collapse of institutions. I want to talk about that later in the show, this collapse of institutions. The Republican Party in 2016, the Democratic Party now, uh, absolutely bizarre. And on top of that, uh, you, you've got now, you're moving into New Hampshire. Pete Buttigieg should be able to get a bump out of this, but it's not just them. You had the Des Moines Register and Selzer poll collapse as well Sunday night, a harbinger of what would come on Monday. You, you need to understand that aspect of it as well. This was a colossal screw-up in Iowa. Uh, they only have to do this once every four years. Maybe, just maybe, the screw-up was so bad this time, we'll finally be able to say we can stop going to Iowa every four years, but... Good Lord, uh, send in Planned Parenthood or something for the this non-viable caucus on the Democratic side. So I need to explain to you the Des Moines Register poll. See how my seeing how my voice does here. Um, welcome back, by the way. It is Eric Erickson. Yes, I am back to the land of the living. Good gracious, was I sick? Um, 
it's good to be back. I, and, you know, I, I got to tell you, I was going to come back yesterday and my wife uh, all, all but ordered that I not come back. And, and my producer and I are both scared of my wife. So we we did what she decided. Um, and But here I am today. What a day to come back. And one of the things that I would have mentioned to you yesterday and explained to you is the Ann Selzer. Des Moines Register poll. They paired up with CNN this time. And you do need to actually kind of understand this. And and I don't want to be in the weeds with you, but I want to actually uh, explain stuff to you. And, and some of these things, I guess we could say, are harbingers of, of what's to come. Uh, the Ann Selzer polling is never accurate, but is always better than everybody else's poll. Meaning the the Ann Selzer polling, it she is an Iowa pollster and has been for decades. She is probably the most respected pollster in the country, and she will poll around the country, but Iowa is where she specializes. And she's been doing Iowa caucus polling for decades now. And an Ann Selzer poll is the gold standard because she polls more people. She was one of the first pollsters to realize she needed to start polling cell phones. She has a massive accumulation of people that she calls, and she does a very good job of polling not people who say they're going to go to the caucuses, uh, but people who have actually gone to the caucuses. And that's very big because a lot of people say they're going to go. And this time we actually know uh, that if you want some concerns for the Democrats headed into the general election, their caucus turnout was down. They actually had more people turn out in 2016 than this time. And in 2016, they only had two candidates. That should be troubling for the Democrats that Republicans actually turned out well for one candidate. Democrats turned out poorly for a bunch of candidates. That's a problem for the Democrats. Uh, but Selzer did her polling, and apparently uh, some of the people in the call center, they use a call center. The way these polls are done, and, and you say, by the way, well, I've never gotten a poll. I, people don't call me. Well, uh, if you're registered to vote— and your phone number, landline phone number, is attached to your voter registration, that increases your odds of getting polled. If you want to be polled, if you're if you want to be polled, you need to be registered to vote and you need to have your landline uh, attached to your voter registration number. That's how you're going to get polled, people. Not a cell phone, but a landline. Yes, they sell. They, they do cell phones now, but not as much. Um, so in any event, uh, so Selzer's polling, they use live humans to do the calls. And more than one call screener had the text blown up so much it cut off uh, Pete Buttigieg's name. Now, what's so remarkable about this is that Pete Buttigieg came in third in the Selzer polling. It was Sanders, Warren, and Buttigieg. And remarkably, that's about what happened in Iowa. Uh, Pete Buttigieg had a remarkable surge in Iowa. Uh, enough so, he's calling himself the victor headed into New Hampshire today. I'll tell you what the real story of Iowa should be that no one's paying attention to. Joe Biden wiped out, wiped out, completely wiped out. Uh, multiple suburban counties where Biden should have done well uh, had, could not reach minimum viability. And because Iowa was such a screw up, Joe Biden can go into New Hampshire without that being the story. The story is the Iowa caucuses were screwed up, not that Joe Biden fell flat on his face and Pete Buttigieg did better than him. Uh, Buttigieg is going to be hurt by this in a way that Biden is going to be helped by this because 
the story is going to be about the screw up and it's going to overshadow how everyone did. We may not actually know. Remember, it was a week after the 2012 caucus that we learned Rick Santorum actually beat Mitt Romney. It's going to take a while for this to percolate. And meanwhile, Joe Biden's going to be able to go into New Hampshire without having to have Iowa over his head. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, want to share your thoughts on the Iowa caucus, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's roll the Pete Buttigieg tape here if we can. Uh, Buttigieg went on uh, CBS this morning to claim himself the winner. Uh, If I can, uh, bear with me one second. Uh, It is internet issues this morning here in the studio we've been having uh here we go uh, the, the sanders campaign also saying they're essentially victorious there are people online saying that your claim of using the v word is uh i think the hashtag is mayor cheat uh, in retrospect do you think it was a little premature to take the stage and use the v word no i mean looking at what happened last night looking at all of the data that we've got it was an extraordinary night and uh, uh we are absolutely victorious coming into new hampshire i mean this is a campaign that when we launched a year ago people said, you're not a senator, you're not a national name. What what business does somebody from a mid-sized city in the middle of the country have running for president? Said we shouldn't even be here. And now, here we are in the position that we are in, uh, coming into New Hampshire for what we think will be another historic night a week from today. Yeah. Yeah, Mayor Cheat, that is the hashtag uh, that is trending globally right now on social media. Mayor Cheat uh, for claiming victory. It, it appears he might have come in third place behind Sanders and Warren. Uh, <laughs> guy on Twitter who I follow just tweeted this out. Pete Buttigieg, assuming himself to be the winner of a massive in-house process meltdown, is very on brand for a management consultant. That it is indeed. Uh, here's Van Jones about what uh, Buttigieg pulled off last night, which actually is impressive. I think I think well, I think, I think, I think it's, I think it's, history. I think it's history because you have a gay man uh, who did the impossible. If he's number one, if he's number two, that's a big deal. Uh, he talked to his husband. His husband came out with him. That you've not seen that before in American history on a primary night, a caucus night, and that was a huge deal. And he deserved. Uh, for the the numbers to be running below him while he was giving that speech. Right. He got robbed of that. And I think it's terrible. I think Biden got an undeserved lifeline tonight uh, because, again, I, I think that. an amble was about to drop on his head. And he got a chance to kind of you know, scoot away like Wiley Coyote. But I'm going to tell <laughs> you, from my point of view, um, you know, this is, this is uh, I, the, the bounce that he deserves, all the stuff. Your, your prediction is more true. Strakonish said, hey, listen, whoever comes out here good tonight is not going to be able to enjoy it. We didn't know how true it was going to be. But I just think it's, it's worth just taking a moment to acknowledge history was made tonight. Uh, we had a, a, a gay American get that close to either first or second, give a speech like that. And it's important. And it should have been. It is. Been we we should see tonight. enough. Listen, uh, he's right. Uh, There is a level of history here uh, with Pete Buttigieg, a millennial gay mayor from South Bend, Indiana, uh, coming in third, it appears. Uh, You know, Iowa is never good at predicting ultimate winners, but Iowa is very good at, at wiping people out. And Iowa should wipe out Joe Biden. Uh, And Joe Biden is the guy I've said all along. I I think Biden's going to be the nominee and it's looking like uh, it's his race to lose and he's going to lose it. 
it's fundamentally looking like he's going to lose it. It was an absolute meltdown. And part of the problem that they're going to have to deal with as the Democrats is what to do with the Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders. And meanwhile, out there, you've got Mike Bloomberg. We haven't even gotten to Bloomberg yet. We need to get there. But listen to Chris Cuomo last night about the Bernie Sanders situation. Ryan, you make a lot of good points. And one of them is, you know, they changed the rules and streamlined the process because of what happened the last time to Bernie Sanders. So if anybody wanted to come out on top, you know, if he finished at the top here tonight, that's one more day of being on top. That's one more day of momentum. It's one more day of raising money and attention. And he has been denied that by this process. But we'll see. New Hampshire just stays away. He is denied the process. Uh, He is denied the victory, just as Joe Biden is protected by the collapse. And that's where uh, some level of this conspiracy theory is coming in on the Democratic side among the Bernie bros that the, the, the and by the way, let me just say out of the gate, I don't believe this. I don't think it's true, uh, but it is certainly beginning to buzz online in certain corners of the Internet uh, among Bernie supporters that they saw that Biden was collapsing. And so they pulled the plug on the app that it was designed by Hillary Clinton supporters. They don't like Bernie. They they screwed him in 2016. They're out to do it again in, in 2020. And so they did everything they possibly could to undermine him. And in so doing, uh, we're able to pull the plug on the app, collapse it, crash it, uh, make it not work so that no one would notice that uh, Bernie Sanders was winning and Joe Biden was losing. There is your conspiracy theory of the day. By the way, it does not help that the. <laughs> I can't laugh too hard. Or I'm going to have a coughing fit here, but it actually is really funny. Um, <clears throat> the. <laughs> The, the the company that designed the app, the Hillary Clinton forces who designed the app, uh, the name of the company, Shadow. Shadow Inc. That's right. Shadow Inc. Uh, meanwhile, there's happening right now, uh, President Trump, according to Gallup, uh, his, has hit 49% in approval, the highest uh, it has ever been. For the president's approval rating as the Democrats uh, have this meltdown. And, I, you know, this is actually this is a pretty amazing week for the president. When you think about it, you've got the Iowa caucus meltdown. And, and again, it is you got to understand that uh, this was a, a downturn. They were expecting a highly energized, highly mobile, highly excited, highly passionate, highly angry Democratic base to show up and vote at the Iowa caucuses last night. And what did they get? Depressed turnout. Fewer people showed up for more candidates last night than in 2016. The number of new people who showed up was less than what they were expecting. And here's another interesting thing. Only 18% of the people who showed up at the polls, according to the entrance polling, which aren't super reliable but are fairly good, but only 18% use Twitter actively. That's actually an interesting data point. When so much of the political press, particularly on the left, is fueled by social media, so much of the coverage that you get on a day-to-day basis now in the media is generated in large part because of reporters on social media and the people who went to the polls in Iowa last night at the caucuses aren't engaged in social media. 
it's just a, it's the remarkable disconnect there where, where you think if you're on Twitter, for example, you think everybody else must be on Twitter and and be in the little circle and, and they're not. Uh, it, it's very interesting to watch. Now, I want to play a couple more audio bits for you. And you should know, by the way, you should know. I got an uh, I wouldn't say angry, but it was it was an aggravated email on Friday that I have been playing more audio that the, the, the person would much rather hear me speak and analyze than play a lot of audio. And I said, I'm sorry, I've been losing my voice. So I'm playing audio to compensate for it. And that to some degree is. But there actually is so much to wade through. And I also don't want to steal the points that other people have made. And, and there are things you need to hear in order to digest the calamity of what happened last night, including this exchange on Morning Joe this morning. What is wrong with the Iowa Democratic Party? Again, this is a party who botched uh, the call four years ago, rushed it when the media was shocked that they would be so transparent. Uh, and, and, and now they get on the phone for mm-hmm. 74 seconds. The world's watching this. I, we're not being melodramatic. This for, is- for a year and a half, American politics has been focused on this moment. And the Democratic Party has a crappy app. And they say, well, nothing happened to that. But then you're hearing the reports that something did happen to the app. Was there election interference? Did somebody try to hack into the app? Was it just pure incompetence? Is the information lost? Yeah, did they lose the information? Is it gone? Why were they only on the phone for 74 seconds when they should be holding two-hour press conferences explaining to America and the world what happened? Wow. Yeah, and Chris Hayes' meltdown. This is really kind of a worst-case scenario, I think, for the folks that organize this caucus. The Iowa Democratic Party says it's uh, simply a reporting issue, that it's not a hack or an intrusion, which I think is important to note here. And I think it's also really important to stress that um, there is a paper and pencil record, right? That This was not a secret ballot. This is the opposite. The, the data exists. The data, in fact, was collected very publicly. With the utmost transparency, meaning people read out the results to a room full of people, often with cameras uh, recording or broadcasting. We saw all that on air. So there is, at least in theory, there's a checkable record. It's not lost. That said, the damage done is pretty significant, both for the confidence in the Democratic Party and for campaigns looking for a bump out of tonight's results. <laughs> you think? Listen. I mean, talk about casting doubt uh, on the whole process. Well, one last audio bit for you out of this. Uh, well, I got a couple, but this, this is the one I really want to play. Andrew Yang. A few minutes ago, I caught up with Andrew Yang, a candidate, when he arrived here from Iowa in New Hampshire. Do you have questions about the legitimacy of the process in Iowa when the results do come out? Are you going to wonder, hey, are, are these fair? Well, I'll certainly... Uh, take the folks in Iowa at their word. I mean, I'm sure they would not have wished this kind of delay um, on anyone. And so, you know, like the the data, I'm sure will prove out they have a record of most all of it. A lot of it happened in public. Andrew Yang came out this morning and said, uh, this is why we need a president who understands technology. You know, like I disagree with Andrew Yang about almost everything, but wow, uh, he's such a, a genuine human being. Uh, and it, it's it's nice to to have a normal person out there, a seemingly normal person running for president, even with some of his kooky ideas. He, he's not angry about it. I mean, my goodness, the guy is running for president of the United States. No one knew who he was six months ago, and he got got delegates out of Iowa last night, which is fantastic for him, uh, or at least potentially got delegates out of Iowa last night. We, we don't actually know, and, and that's kind of the funny thing here. The president's going to have the State of the Union address tonight. He'll be acquitted of impeachment 
tomorrow, and we may not know who actually won Iowa until next week. This very much reminds me of 2012. Actually, when I got my, so that was my first Iowa caucus. The first one I'd ever been to was in 2012. Uh, Mitt Romney versus Rick Santorum, and that night, Mitt Romney declared himself the winner, and it became very obvious in the overnight hours that Rick Santorum had actually won. And Santorum's uh, party was just jubilant. By the way, that that was also my inside uh, peek at the American political media, which was actually somewhat funny. I was sitting next to sitting next to a, a very prominent national reporter who was at a different network at the time. And there were there were two uh, prominent reporters for this network both of whom were vying to be anchor at that network. And the one I was next to was the one who knew everything, uh, but was not the pretty boy. And I will never forget, hey, Charlie knows who I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not going to say it on air, but I, I'll never forget that I'm, I'm sitting next to the reporter, who's a brilliant reporter, by the way, a, a scrupulously fair, uh, wonderful human being. Uh, and he's, they're asking him questions in his IFB. That, that's a little earpiece he wears. Uh, and they're asking him questions for the other guy. And he just explodes uh, in expletives that he is not going to do the other guy's work for him. If the other guy wants the anchor position so bad, he needs to learn how to do his homework and learn politics so he can say something about it instead of having everybody else do his work for him because he's eventually going to have to be called and just went on this tirade. And all the people at all the other networks were kind of staring at this guy thinking, ooh, that's, that's, that's that's probably not a good thing. It was only a few months later that he left that network. He's now in a better position, but wow, it, it was it was something. So we're at the Santorum thing, and this, uh, interestingly enough, it was also when I decided I didn't much care for Rick Santorum uh, because we're at the Santorum event, and, you know, Santorum kind of has this man-of-the-people attitude or, or persona, and I saw him deeply belittling uh, staffers at this hotel, and then a reporter went up and asked him a question, and he just tore into the guy for no reason. And the reporter was just as nice as he could be. And Santorum says he'd already given the information to a different network. And the reporter was trying to explain, sir, that the different network isn't going to share this with us. We're happy to give you more exposure on the story. And Santorum was having none of it. And I realized everyone can have a bad, bad day. But that was the, the first of several encounters I had with Rick Santorum where he was absolutely belittling to people. He had no business being belittling to hotel staff and others. And, and I realized it was a stressful night for him. But still. I found it deeply, deeply unfortunate and, and have never really cared for the guy since. And everyone, oh, he's such a wonderful person. And I'm like, ah. You know, when, when nobody's looking and you're treating people that way, um, that, that says a lot to me. Uh, it, it was an eye-opening experience, though, uh, hanging out in Iowa that night. Man, uh, it was Alex Castellanos and I at CNN, and we wound up going back to the hotel bar like 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Mary Matlin and Donna Brazil had been there, and they had ordered us a pizza and beer. The bar had closed, and so they're sitting there with, with warming beer and cold pizza. It is like five degrees outside and snowing and we're hanging out until three o'clock in the morning drinking and eating eating i mean stale beer and cold pizza and then i realized oh 
I got an hour and I got to be back on TV and I haven't even had bed. I uh, hadn't gone to bed. It was it was it was an exciting time uh, back when I was young and could do stuff like that. Uh, Iowa, it is a heck of a thing. And the meltdown last night, that's going to have reverberations throughout this democratic process because you know Iowa's got to have delegates. And and by the way, just so you understand, the the votes have been counted in Iowa. Each precinct tabulated the results. The app was about transmitting those results to the state party. So they can do a manual count. They've got the votes. It's, it's not like the vote has been hacked. Uh, each precinct actually does a handwritten ballot of all the numbers and does the math and everything on the piece of paper. All the app was designed to do was to e- efficiently transmit that data to the state party. And it completely broke down. It's amazing they tried to be so transparent that there's no transparency at all now because the app crashed. Uh, and yet we've actually – they have the data, so they'll be able to give the delegate totals. The, the problem, though, is that the candidates were hoping for a bounce out of Iowa, and now the only story out of Iowa will be the gross incompetence of the Democratic Party. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm going to sneeze, aren't I, getting over this cold. Um, Thank God for a mute button. (laughs) Oh, man, I hate being sick. Um, You know the big winner last night? The Electoral College. The Electoral College. Gracious. Um, the, the Electoral College holds up. Can you imagine having a national election uh, run like the Iowa caucus? The Electoral College matters, and that is, that, that's why. Listen, I, I could spend all day on the Iowa caucus, but there's so much other news, stuff to catch up on from when I was out sick and, and stuff coming up, the State of the Union. The president's going to be in, acquitted uh, in the Senate tomorrow. Joe Manchin uh, coming out in favor of censure. And we got Georgia news we got to talk about as well, uh, including the Kelly Leffler, uh, Doug Collins race. Uh, man, that is already getting nasty. We'll get into that. But uh, before I do anything else, I want to mention some. Some of you who listen to this program, regardless of where you are in the state of Georgia, will know the name Grover Sassman. Uh, he, uh, the oldest uh, owning, continuously owning Harley dealer in the country, is in Macon, Georgia. The Harley dealership there, and uh, Mr. Sassman, Grover Sassman, passed away the other day. Uh, his funeral will be today. A World War II veteran, he went in ahead of MacArthur to make uh, make way for MacArthur uh, in the Philippines to make headway on the beaches, and uh, was a mechanic uh, in the Marines, a, a sergeant, uh, put together two planes, Corsairs. He was a mechanic on Corsairs in the Pacific Theater. He put the front of one and the back of another together, two planes. The the, the back of one and the front of the other were, were damaged badly. He knew they were going to shove them overboard, an aircraft carrier, and so he worked uh, tirelessly to put together these two planes, the front and the back, to get one viable plane out of two others. Uh, to help with the invasion, and, and he pulled it off. Uh, I, I interviewed him back in August. I played part of the interview before. Just a fascinating person, and, and to the end, uh, his mind was sharp as a tack. He could tell you the difference in Corsairs. We actually, they flew one into Macon uh, in August to the Middle Georgia Regional Airport, and he could tell it was a, a three-blade Corsair. Uh, apparently, there were three-blade and four-blade Corsairs, and he could tell the difference between the two, and it was describing to the pilot the difference between how they sounded. Just a remarkable human being. Came back after the war, uh, moved to Lakeland, Florida. Mr. Davidson from Harley-Davidson asked him to move down there to open a Harley dealership. Then was headed up to Charlotte, North Carolina to open one. 
uh, got stuck in Macon, Georgia, and, and Mr. Davison said, well, you know what, open one there, and, and he did, and it's been around ever since. He was a uh, heck of a man, a true American patriot who will be buried this afternoon in Macon with military honors. It's just, it's, we're losing our World War II veterans at such a pace now. There are none left of World War I uh, and fewer every day of World War II. And it, it's just, it's, it's nice to remember these lives of people who came home after the war and, and helped build this country into what it was. And he did here in Georgia selling a lot of Harleys to a lot of people, including my wife, who now has her Harley fat boy that she rides the countryside with. When we come back, the State of the Union address is tonight. What should we expect? Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Thank you to Alan Sanders for filling in for me on Friday and yesterday while my voice came back. Uh, still recovering from whatever it was, but man, I, I went to the doctor on, on Friday morning. Uh, they tested me for strep and for flu, said I had the symptoms of both and tested negative for both. And uh, my doctor was actually out of town. Uh, it, it was the, the nurse and uh, wanted me to do ibuprofen and pseudoephedrine and, and mucinex and the like. And by Friday afternoon, they called and said, hey, we're calling you an antibiotics and a steroid pack because that seems to be doing the trick for people. So I, I got no idea what I've had, but holy cow, a lot of people have had it and it was just awful. Um, thank you. A number of you have, have emailed to check in. I uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, I am doing uh, on the mend at least. Um, now, we got a lot we got to talk about beyond uh, Iowa. I will take your phone calls on all of that. Uh, the phone number here, if you'd like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. Happy to have you call in. But let's get uh, real quick to the State of the Union, uh, which will be tonight uh, across, well, the nation. We will we will hear all about it, I'm sure. This is a good week for the president, actually, when you think about it. Uh, you've got uh, the Democrats, a failure in Iowa last night for the world to see. The people who want to run your health care and the economy couldn't even run a caucus last night in Iowa. You've got uh, his, they will throw out impeachment tomorrow. He'll be acquitted of impeachment tomorrow. It's fascinating to see the Democrats say impeachment is forever, but somehow acquittal is not. Uh, he will be acquitted tomorrow in the Senate. Lisa Murkowski saying she will vote to acquit the president. She thinks what he did was wrong, but not impeachable. It's amazing that the media doesn't want us to have nuanced standards anymore. The media used to be really big into nuance. Not anymore. Not when it comes to this president. You're not allowed to have nuance. He, he's either uh, guilty of sin or, or he's not. And if he's not, it's because you're a hateful bigot protecting him because everybody knows he's guilty. As opposed to what he did was wrong, but it's not impeachable. It doesn't, doesn't rise to the standard of impeachability even if you don't think he should have done it, uh, which is actually a, a fairly good standard. And by the way, it's one the Democrats employed with Barack Obama when it came to things like Fast and Furious or when it came to the IRS, uh, that it was bad. It shouldn't have been done. It sets a dangerous precedent of the future, but it's not impeachable. Of course, it's not impeachable. That's why so many people don't take the media seriously in stuff like this. And then, of course, there's the State of the Union tonight. Now, I, I've got to tell you, I hate the State of the Union. I, I've never particularly cared for the State of the Union, but it's just gotten worse over the years. Uh, that He really should deliver it in writing. But, of course, he wants the spectacle tonight. Democrats are, some of them are thinking of boycotting the address because they don't want to be there with him as he gives the State of the Union address. They're afraid he's going to go on, on offense against them, and he should, frankly. 
Uh, I don't know whether he will or not. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he did. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we see booing on the floor of the House with Nancy Pelosi letting them do it. We'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see if they all rise above it tonight. I'm not optimistic. And, and if anything, frankly, I think it'd be fun at this point to, to see something like that. But the State of the Union is a great scam. It is the, the great American scam. I started covering the State of the Union for CNN back in 2000. In fact, let me tell you a funny story. Uh, you all can have a laugh at my expense. <laughs> Can't believe I'm telling you this. Um, I, 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 yep, we're going to go there because uh, my wife's not listening right now, um, although she would probably want me to tell you. So my very first day of the union covering it on television was for CNN in 2010. I worked for CNN from the end of 2009 uh, through the president's inaugural in 2013 and then moved to Fox in 2013, where I was until the beginning of 2018. And hilariously, I, I, I got my first paycheck from CNN and it was way more money in one paycheck than I had ever made in my life. Uh, being on TV paid well. So I get this check from CNN and the first thing I did is I bought a new car. I had a, a falling apart car. I mean, it was bad falling apart and I, there literally was duct tape on part of the car. And so I went out and I got a new car, I got a brand new Toyota 4Runner. Oh, I, I missed that car. So, man, I loved my 4Runner. Um, but I got that and I got a big green egg. I wanted a big green egg. I, I, I love to cook. I wanted a big green egg. So I got a, a great big, big green egg, got the wooden table. I got to get a new wooden table now. Um, but I got the big green egg. Well, if you've never used a big green egg or, or anything like it, uh, those sorts of, of smoker grills, you've got a burp the big green egg uh, if, you, if you're if you grilling. Now, what I mean by burping is you've got to raise the lid just a little bit to allow air in to start the flame because if you just open the lid, the, the way it, it contains itself is it suppresses the flame. It, it, it's hot. There's enough air circulation for the coals to glow and, and to burn four, five, 600 degrees, but there's not a flame. So if you were to open up the big green egg all the way, initially the, the air would hit it and you'd have this huge fireball come out. So you got to burp it. It's kind of like a backdraft. If you've ever seen the movie Backdraft, uh, you, you've got to be careful when you open it. So you open it just a little bit and you get a f air in there. It causes the flame you, and then you open it all the way and you're not going to have this big fireball. I knew this. So I'm using the big green egg for the first time. I'm grilling burgers. This is the day I discovered after buying the $1,000 big green egg, my wife doesn't like the flavor of charcoal. So I use the big green egg still, but only for smoking. For grilling, I use a gas grill. Uh, but anyway, so I, I raised the lid. I've got a, I bought the big green egg. I intended to use it. I had to fly out to CNN, the, to Washington the next day to be on CNN for State of the Union. And I raise the lid, I burp it a little bit, I lower it, and then I raise it again, and poof, big fireball comes out. I thought, my goodness, I, I, my knuckles are singed. And I go inside, I carry the burgers in, and I keep thinking, these burgers don't smell right. They smell like hair. Could not figure out what was going on. And again, I, I got to be on TV the next day, I'm flying out the next morning to Washington for CNN. And I, I set the burgers down in the kitchen and then I go in the bathroom to wash my hands and I realize I don't have any eyebrows. Not only do I not have any eyebrows, 
the, the hair at the front of my head is gone. I mean, there's nothing there. It is incinerated. I have no eyebrows. My eyelashes have curled up. And I have no hair. Like right at the front of my, right, right at the front. There is nothing. It is burned. That's what I was smelling. And I got to be on TV the next day. I, I went to went to CNN the next day to cover. It was my first day of the union address. Uh, I had been invited to come to Congress to be on the floor. Couldn't make it, um, but was, was able to be in studio for CNN. A big deal. And I get into the makeup room and the makeup artist looks at me. She says, you are the first man I have ever had to draw eyebrows on. Sure enough, she had to draw eyebrows on me because I didn't have any. They were gone thanks to the big green egg. <laughs> it was, oh man, it took them a while to grow back. It did. Uh, I had completely incinerated my eyebrows. And there I was on CNN, uh, the the only man on air that night who had painted on eyebrows. Um, thanks to my girl. Everybody got a great laugh out of that. But uh, that was the night I was so excited. I was going to cover the State of the Union address. And got to be on CNN. It was Barack Obama, 2010. Uh, Obamacare was headed into law, all this stuff. It, it was a, c- a celebratory mood for the Democrats. And I knew the Republicans were coming. Uh, it was going to be a big deal for the Republicans. I believe that was the Joe Wilson, you lie one too as well. So it, it was a big State of the Union address. And we said all sorts of big and fancy things. And, and it dawned on me three days later, I forget what it was, but I was on CNN And we were no longer talking about the State of the Union. No longer talking about the State of the Union address. We had moved on to something else. And that was kind of an aha moment for me. And I've noticed over the years since then that we pour vast amount of attention on the State of the Union address. Uh, typically, if I wasn't sick, you know, I'd do an evening show in Atlanta, and typically I would do an overnight show post-State of the Union where we uh, assess uh, what happened at the State of the Union, the impact of the State of the Union. We take call or reaction to the State of the Union and the response, all that stuff. Uh, we pour our energy into it. it. It's a big media moment. Uh, the, everybody has a fancy graphics package. You got all the people go to Capitol Hill. Everybody gets dressed up. The president comes in. It's it's pomp. It's circumstance. They follow the motorcade down Pennsylvania Avenue. And three days later, we're talking about something else. It is at this point a ceremonial waste of time. And this president in particular, and, and no offense to the president's supporters, but this president has inevitably killed a positive news cycle for himself after the State of the Union. If you'll remember last year's State of the Union address, I think it was last year's State of the Union address, the President of the United States gave an impassioned plea for border security, and he highlighted families who had members of their families that had been killed by the MS-13 gang. And he documented the brutality of that gang and how it takes advantage of open borders, uh, the drug trade, and the like. It was a powerful moment. And it actually drew bipartisan praise. The president's defense of border security and need to tackle this gang issue drew bipartisan praise. There was a Washington Post story about how MS-13 was uh, invading Uh, local high schools in the Washington, D.C. area, and and a culture of fear was coming over certain poor high schools, and and certain kids 
were moving into the gangs. It, it, it was uh, public schools were becoming a training ground for the gangs, and the president was right, and he needed to do something. And by the end of the week, the president had crapped all over somebody on Twitter, and everybody forgot about the State of the Union address. His impulsiveness and lack of self-control ruined the news cycle. And he did himself a disservice in his Twitter attack. And I can't even remember now who he was attacking on Twitter. But, but and it, wasn't a, it wasn't CNN. It, it, was, it was somebody the president went after, and it gave the media license to abandon. Now, they were going to abandon it anyway. But he could have made it to the weekend. And had the president made it to the weekend with State of the Union, it would have been the dominant prevailing conversation on the Sunday shows. So he could have gotten an entire week's worth of news out of the State of the Union. And instead, he went on the attack on, I think it was something about the Mueller, Mueller investigation. And he went on this huge attack, went on the warpath, and it completely overshadowed the State of the Union address. And increasingly, this happens. And it's not just this president, even, even the last president, Barack Obama, and before him, George W. Bush. We could go a few, we could go a week and then we would move on. Now we're moving on the next day. And this week, of course, it is almost designed to ignore the State of the Union. You, we will still be, when the president takes the podium tonight at the State of the Union, we will still be trying to figure out who won Iowa. And then tomorrow, it'll all be forgotten because he will be acquitted of impeachment and the Democrats will be losing their minds on, on television. So this is a State of the Union that is not going to be well-remembered, I, I would suspect. Now, of course, that means I'm going to be wrong. This is going to be the one that everybody's talking about forever. Um, but but in, if, if the pattern stays, we'll be moved on from the State of the Union by Thursday. Really, in this case, we'll be moved on from the State of the Union by tomorrow because of impeachment. And, and we'll go through all the pomp and all the circumstance. We'll go through all the high-minded punditry and rhetoric and everything else, and tomorrow we'll have already moved on and forgotten it. We live in an ever, ever faster pace of society to begin with. And in moving on to this faster pace of society and moving on to these, these new segments, it takes a lot of discipline in Washington, D.C. by politicians to maintain their focus. And this president, more than most, lacks the discipline to maintain focus. And now with the news cycle as well, he can't help it. And it's just it, it seems like we're, we're going to give it way more attention than is due, given how quickly everyone's going to forget the State of the Union address by next week. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Don't forget to sign up for our activist army. Uh, more and more important uh, these days as, as the, the news tends to get overshadowed. And I can keep you guys informed of what's happening on the ground around the country. Uh, uh, text the word ARMY to 33777. Text ARMY to 33777. Uh, and uh, at the bottom of the hour, uh, you know, with the State of the Union tonight, uh, my buddy Phil Kirpin from American Commitment is going to stop by. One of the things the president wants to focus on in the State of the Union today is health care. And uh, you should be advised, if, if you are familiar with the AARP, that it is essentially now, it looks like, uh, taking money from certain healthcare organizations to push their plans, and they are inevitably the Democrats' plans, uh, which is not a good thing. So um, just be advised. Now, I want to put in perspective uh, where the president is in the run-up to the State of the Union. Gallup has job approval numbers out today, and this president is at an all-time high for him at 49 percent. 
Uh, on the same day in 2000, um, in, in 2004, George W. Bush was at 49%. On the same day in 2012, Barack Obama was at 45%. So this president is doing better than where uh, Barack Obama was for re-election at the same time. Uh, he's only three behind Clinton. He's got nine months to go to election. Uh, Clinton was at 52, Bush 49, Obama 45, Trump 49. Uh, George H.W. Bush lost re-election. His, uh, his support was at 47% at this time. Uh, Carter was at 58, and he lost at, at Reagan 55 so you can only put so much into the numbers, but but still an interesting benchmark for all the people who think, you know, this president for sure is toast, not necessarily. And he's got a way to reset and recalibrate with the State of the Union to, tonight. Uh, he wants to focus on immigration. He wants to focus on national security, and he wants to focus on health care. Those seem to be his big three things. But one of the other things he intends to focus on is criminal justice reform. You probably heard the Super Bowl ad uh, where he really is is leaning into criminal justice reform as a way to pick up uh, black support. This is the lady, Alice Alice Walters, I believe her name was, uh, who was in jail for a long time. Kim Kardashian lobbied the president to pass criminal justice reform to let her out. She was at a lifetime sentence for nonviolent uh, selling of drugs. I'm free to hug my family. I'm free to start over. This is the greatest day of my life. My heart is just bursting with gratitude. I want to thank President Donald John Trump. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. Yeah, that was a powerful Super Bowl ad. Uh, if if you missed it, uh, Google the president's ad. People knew the president was going to put an ad in the Super Bowl. And virtually every person thought in the commentariat that it was going to be a, a rally the base ad. No one was expecting a criminal justice reform ad, particularly one that focused on black voters. The president came to Atlanta earlier this year and said he was going to make a real play for black voters. Now, interestingly enough, every president says that's what they're going to do. And few of them actually do. And this president, if there's one thing we've learned about this president, uh, he is very good at keeping his word on these things. When he says he's going to make a play for a particular group of voters, he makes a play for that particular group of voters. And he wants to use criminal justice reform as a way to make a make an impact with black voters. Now, I got to tell you, uh, the, the prevailing sentiment out there is, is well, he's not going to be able to. I don't think that's true. And even if it is, he only needs a couple of percentage points. If the president can pick up a couple of points of black voters, he can offset any loss of support that he's already had on his side. He can replace part of his base with someone else's base. And particularly Bernie Sanders, an, an atheist, socialist, communist uh, guy from Vermont, runs for the is the Democratic nominee. Depending on who his running mate choice is, you may very well see a significant portion of black and Hispanic voters both go to the president. Now, I realize that that we're, we're, you're convinced that the president is racist. You laugh at that and say it's impossible. But I'm telling you, the data is there for this president to be able to make a play in a way that few others have been able to make. And it's going to be interesting to see if this is his first message for reelection 
on the national stage. It's going to be interesting to see how his message translates when it comes to the State of the Union tonight. It is Eric Erickson, and yes, as the voice says, as JJ says, you can call in. Uh, we do take your calls, 877-973-7425. I will send out another recipe. Y'all got the red beans and rice last week. I'll send out another recipe tomorrow. If you want to be on the recipe list, and it, this list is not for sale, uh, you're not going to get spam. You're just going to get a recipe uh, maybe once a week if I remember. Uh, <laughs> you text the word recipe to 33777, and it's just a recipe. And the reason I sent out a recipe, I know it sounds silly, but I am increasingly convinced that we have become such isolated people uh, that it, it, trying to encourage people to take a simple recipe and, and cook it at home with your family and break bread around a table is actually a good, healthy thing for society. I, you know, I so I started seminary a number of years ago. This is not where I was headed, by the way, but but here we are. Uh, I started seminary a number of years ago. And I, I did so because I kept being asked to preach on Sundays and I felt uncomfortable not having been to seminary and, and yet getting asked to preach. And it, it's been a deeply rewarding experience. I've had to take off uh, two semesters to get the show off the ground and I'm ready to go back. Uh, but one of the things in, in taking the prophets class, I, I really fell in love with the book of Amos but also renewed my appreciation for Jeremiah. Isaiah gets all the, all the hype, and, and obviously for obvious reasons in, in Scripture. But man, uh, Jeremiah 29, 7, Seek the welfare of the city in which you're in exile and pray for it, and, and there you will find your welfare. Uh, it really struck a chord with me as a political activist, frankly, uh, because uh, so many people get so worked up about Washington, D.C., and the reality of the situation is that in uh, Washington, D.C., you're not going to find your welfare. You, it is, it's not a place. Washington is not a place that's going to affect your life as much as your local community. And I, I feel very strongly that as a political activist, we need to work more in our local communities for the welfare of our local communities, for the benefit of our local communities. And part of that is just getting to know your neighbor. And so that's one reason I do this recipe list is, is just break bread. Even if it's with your family or, or your close friends, break bread uh, and get to know people. Uh, so text the word recipe to 33777 if you want to do that. Uh, now, uh, I want to actually uh, get on the phone here with Phil Kirpin uh, from American Commitment. Phil, how are you? I'm great, Eric. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for doing this. Uh, perfect timing, too, with the State of the Union today. I, I was just actually talking about it in my last segment that it, it frustrates me and that uh, the president gives this big thing. We, we treat it as some great thing. And then uh, by two days later, we forget it. I, I know one of the things he wants to talk about this year is health care. And I know, they, in fact, I've already seen ads around in the run-up to it on the news networks that the AARP and others are pushing particular health care plans. And I'm always struck how it seems like it's all the Democrats' plans that they push. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, the, that AARP ad, uh, sort of quasi-praising Trump by using last year's State of the Union, uh, where he called for lower drug prices to push Nancy Pelosi's price control bill, which is what that ad is doing, although they're kind of subtle about it. Um, it's pretty clever, especially for the Fox audience. They, they know what they're doing. Uh, right. No question about that. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing about AARP in particular that's really interesting that not a lot of people understand is they make most of their money selling health insurance products uh, and selling the products of one company, United Health, that they have an exclusive deal with. 
And every time they sell a United Health product uh, with the AARP brand on it, they take 5% off the top. Uh, they call it a royalty because if they called it a commission, they'd have to register as an insurance broker with all the states and be regulated and everything else. So they call it a royalty. They make $600 million a year doing that. And um, the health insurance industry, and United Health in particular, has discovered that they can use AARP, their, their business partners that they're making $600 million a year for, as sort of the public-facing arm of their political advocacy efforts. And so, you know, as they ramp up their efforts to push the Nancy Pelosi prescription drug price control bill, they're putting the AARP uh, forward as kind of the public-facing brand on that. And there, there's going to be a health care bill this year because when uh, they did the year-end spending bill last year, Nancy Pelosi very shrewdly uh, set an expiration date for a lot of the health care programs, a lot of the Medicaid programs, other health care programs, of May 22nd, while everything else was extended for the full year. And so there, there's going to be a must-pass Healthcare bill um, before that May 22nd deadline, and she's betting that she can get some version of her prescription drug price control plans and maybe some of the other Democratic healthcare priorities into that. And the president, who won't dare oppose something that is framed as lowering drug prices, uh, she thinks would actually sign it. So she's trying to get maximum leverage here. And uh, that that's kind of what's going on with this stuff. And, you know, I, I don't you know, I, I disagree with her whole concept of price controls as the way to lower prices, because, um, you know, developing new drugs is extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, the private sector spends about one hundred eighty billion dollars per year on R&D. It costs on average now over two billion dollars to bring a new drug to market. Uh, I would like to see policies to make it less expensive to develop new drugs and bring them to market. But rather than do that, the Pelosi approach, the bill that the House passed, and no one noticed when they passed this, Eric, because they did it the same week that they voted impeachment out of the House. And they <laughs> did the course. USMCA and they passed the drug price control bill with literally nobody paying attention. Uh, but her bill um, has they, – they call it a negotiation. You tell me if this counts as a negotiation. I love the use of that word. Here's how the negotiation works in the Pelosi bill. The government sits down with the drug manufacturer. And they say, this is what we think your price should be. And, you know, you don't have to take our price. You can take it or leave it. But if, but if you don't take our price, you're going to be taxed 95% of your total sales of that product for the last year. Wow. Not even your profits, your total sales of that profit, of that product for the, for the last year, 95%. So in other words, a way more than 100% income tax on that product uh, if you don't take the government price, which essentially means the government will set the prices. Now, in the short term, um, that's probably a huge positive politically because the price of drugs would go down dramatically if government bureaucrats and politicians are setting them at whatever they think the price should be. Uh, but you're not going to get new cures as a consequence right. of that. And the Council of Economic Advisors looked at this. They found we get 100 fewer cures. The Congressional Budget Office found that private sector R&D would drop from $180 billion a year to $80 billion a year. So it would drop by $100 billion more than half. And given so we, how those estimates always are wrong, it's probably drop even more than that. Well, yeah, I mean, who knows? I yeah. mean, the thing is, if you destroy the incentive for private sector R&D, um, you're going to have to replace it with something. And well, I mean, and, Bernie and, Sanders, know, let me, at least to his credit, says government could do it all. We'll just have, you know, we'll, we'll increase the NIH budget by a factor of 10. I mean, even right. if you could somehow come up with, you know, $2 trillion or whatever it would be to replace the private sector R&D you destroy with, with government research, um, 
it's unlikely it would be as effective and efficient as the private sector with competition and capital markets and everything well, else. Well, you know, in, in that regard, so my wife's got a, a genetic form of lung cancer, and she depends on a pill she takes every day. And our out-of-pocket cost, if we didn't have insurance, would be $20,000 a month for this pill because there are very few people on planet Earth who need this pill. And yet uh, they developed it. They researched it. They're researching because her cancer mutates every few years. Uh, they're developing the next uh, round of drugs for the next mutation. And there's one, a, no way the government would do this because the people with more uh, common cancers, I suspect, would be lobbying the government for attention if the government were to be involved. And, and there's no way that the private sector uh, would develop this medicine if the government said, well, you can't charge that much per month for this pill. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, the, the, the president has identified a real problem, though. And, you know, if you well, I saw the clip they used from last year's State of the Union in the AARP, Ed, you know the problem is uh, that the other rich countries basically get a free ride from us. Yeah. Uh, we're paying for the medical R&D. And Europe and Japan and Canada, they're, they're not because they do have government price controls. And I think their philosophy is, hey, if Americans are paying for all the R&D, great. We don't have to yeah. <laughs> they get a free ride at our expense. And it's a very vexing problem because if we just say, hey, we'll just copy them and do what they do, uh, you know, they won't be getting a free ride from us anymore, but we won't be getting the medical innovation either. And you, so you, you really, what you really want is a solution in the trade context where we negotiate and use our leverage in other trade areas to get these countries to loosen their price controls and, and pay more and cover some of that R&D cost so that we, we can pay a little bit less of it. And the remarkable thing is, the, you know, you, when, it, when I say that, and I've said that kind of since the beginning of the Trump presidency, that was the best approach, the pushback you always get is, hey, no country's ever going to agree to pay more for drugs, so that's hopeless. But the, the crazy thing is we actually did convince Canada and Mexico to pay more for drugs, biotech drugs in particular. In the USMCA, we got them to agree to 10 years of data exclusivity for biotech drugs, which means a longer period of time in which there's a, a, you know, a monopoly for the innovator and they can charge high prices. Um, and Nancy Pelosi demanded that be taken out. And so we finally got a concession from other countries to pay more for prescription drugs. And Nancy Pelosi, in her hatred of the drug companies, doesn't even want them to make more money from other countries. She <laughs> demanded that be taken out, and it was taken out uh, in the final USMCA. And so it, it is possible to get concessions from other countries if you really take a hardball approach to this. And the bill that I really like, and I would love to see the president support tonight, I, I don't know if he will or not, uh, I really like Mark Meadows' bill on this which creates a new special envoy inside the U.S. Trade Representative's office to focus specifically on the issue of breaking, breaking foreign prescription drug price controls and gives the president the power to impose countervailing duties on countries that don't do it. And, you know, as a free trader, I don't like the fact that President Trump would almost certainly use that power if he had it. And, uh, you know, we would have the, the near-term downside of, you know, whatever tariffs or countervailing duties he imposes. But right. uh, it would give the leverage, I think, to actually get deals to get other countries to pay more. And, you know, we should want to pay less without undermining that incentive for R&D. And for that to happen, we've got to get other rich countries to, to pay more. Well, yeah. And I think you've, you're offering a good solution there if the president and the administration will, will be able to push it in and also try to overcome some of the Democratic obstacles there. Um, as far as that goes with the Democratic obstacles, it seems like they are lined up solidly behind uh, government price controls for health care. And, and the real divide is on the Republican side right now. And, and what, what do you see as, as getting Republicans unified behind something to push back on? 
Well, I think you have to give the House Republicans a lot of credit because the, the, when the Democrats did this that week when nobody was paying attention and didn't notice, they actually had a pretty good Republican alternative that uh, sort of packaged a lot of the ideas from Republicans for lower drug prices but without undermining the incentive for R&D. And it did include that Meadows bill. It has a lot of other measures in there, including calling for rebate reform, although it was sort of a soft version of that. But I think that's very important. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge is um, – you know, they've got to get those messages out, and they've got to get the president to buy into them. Frankly, I think that President Trump is so committed to lowering drug prices in some visible way before the election that if Nancy Pelosi's bill did pass the Senate, he would sign it, notwithstanding mm-hmm. his own advisors saying it would you know, reduce the number of new cures developed dramatically. Right. Uh, I think he really wants an accomplishment on this issue, and that makes this a very volatile, dangerous kind of area. Uh, so I think there's a good chance we are going to see legislation on this, and uh, Republicans have got to deliver something. There is a committee product in the Senate uh, that, that, uh, that, that Chuck Grassley wrote that I think could be kind of the kernel of a consensus uh, alternative. Uh, but, uh, you know, if they try to do nothing, they're probably going to f- push the president towards Pelosi's kind of maximalist, you know, government intrusive position. And and by the way, Eric, the, the price controls bill that the Democrats pushed in the House has a lot of support from the health insurance industry, which is why United Health supports it and ARP supports it and so forth. I think they're being shockingly short-sighted in this idea that government nationalizing prescription drug prices will somehow result in them making more money, like they will be allowed to uh, you know, benefit as mm-hmm. insurance companies from spending less on prescription drugs rather than just being the next domino to fall uh, that the Democrats will go after next. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Phil Kirpin, the president of American Commitment. Phil, with all this lay of the land out there right now, if you're a conservative out there, you're listening to the two of us have this conversation, what would you recommend that people do? Well, I think we've got to... Um, We've got to demand and be very clear on this uh, to, to this to our senators in particular that we want a solution that will meaningfully lower drug prices without undermining the incentive for R&D. And we support the, the Mark Meadows measure to strengthen our uh, negotiations on the trade front. Uh, we want to see rebate reform so that so much money isn't diverted to middlemen because the market is very poorly structured right now. The, the pharmacy benefit managers actually have an exemption from the federal anti-kickback statute that lets them ask manufacturers for high prices and high rebates so they can divert the rebates and not pass them on to customers. They should be uh, incentivized to be negotiating for lower prices. They're the buy side of the drug market, so I think we've got to fix that issue. And uh, I would really like to see them do something to tackle the high cost and the lengthy timelines associated with FDA approvals and to streamline that process. I would like to see uh, drugs available to be uh, to be uh, marketed after they're approved for safety prior to their efficacy testing being com- completed, especially when you consider that doctors so frequently find off-label uses anyway. The idea that we wait years and years and years for drugs to be proven effective for a given condition before they can be sold, and then they end up being used for other conditions, <laughs> to me, yeah. suggests we ought to allow uh, drugs on the market as soon as they're proven safe, and I think that would significantly uh, increase access and lower cost as well. So I think the message has got to be we've got to tell our centers, hey, look, if you don't want Nancy Pelosi's crazy price control bill and you should not want it, uh, then you guys have really got to deliver something that will lower prices for prescription drugs and in the near term without undermining the incentive for R&D and developing new cures. Uh, you, you've got to get your act together and come together on something. 
All right, Phil, listen, thanks very much for stopping by. That is very useful. And, and I would tell all my listeners, if they text the word ARMY to 33777, they get on the activist list. And as this moves forward, I'll keep an eye on it and, and keep in touch with you. And we'll make sure, if nothing else, we can maybe stop the Democrats and find something better. I, I sure appreciate you stopping by. My pleasure, Eric. Have a good one. You too. Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. Uh, you can Google American Commitment to get to his website. But again, text the word ARMY to 33777. As this legislation comes down the pike, uh, we'll be able to get you plugged into Congress to be able to, to kill the Democrats. And, and, you know, he's right on this. Uh, it just just let me reiterate from, from my own personal perspective here. If the government is setting prices of medicine, it sounds good because you're thinking, oh, I'll be able to get my current medicine cheaper. But what about the future medicine? The medicine you're on right now didn't exist at a point in time. And it was because of our free market incentives for pharmaceutical companies to innovate and research that the medicine did exist. If there's no longer a profit in innovation, you know exactly how the free market works. They're, they're not going to pour uh, their heart and soul into R&D when they're not going to be able to make their money back. And so Nancy Pelosi's bill sounds good on surface, but has far reaching long term bad consequences for us. And he's right. The president wants a deal on this. He's going to go with hers if there's no alternative. So stay engaged. Text the word ARMY to 33777. Man, I'm glad I just Googled this one. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, we'll take your phone calls, uh, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, There's... Uh, on social media, a, a warning being circulated from the World Health Organization uh, saying to avoid having um, unprotected um, intimate relations with uh, wild or farm animals to prevent the coronavirus. Nope, nope, nope. What, what, what the actual warning says is to avoid uh, contact with uh, wild animals. Uh, be sure to wash up if you do. Uh, someone doctored it. Uh, it, it, to send it out. Y'all, I got to tell you, uh, I think the, the coronavirus is going to be a bigger issue for us over the next couple of weeks than the um, than the State of the Union, than impeachment, than the Iowa debacle. Uh, I do kind of think that in large part, the media is ignored it because they don't want to set off panic. And I do think that uh, there is some legitimacy there in trying to avoid panic. And there are so many other things out there uh, that are bigger and more pressing. But at the same time, we've now got 20,438 cases in China, 427 deaths. In the United States, we are up to 11 cases of coronavirus, and it is confirmed now uh, that it can pass from person to person. And there are all sorts of conflicting stories on how do you handle it? Can you wear face masks? Face masks, of course, are all sold out. What sort of face mask is the best face mask? And on and on it goes. Um, China, there was undercover video in one of the Chinese hospitals where they were just piling up body bags. And the person who sneaked that video out uh, has been arrested and detained by Chinese authorities who are finally allowing uh, the Americans to come in and help them, which is pretty telling here. We constantly hear from people in the media, there is an infatuation on the American left with China, uh, particularly among elite in this country and not just of the left. There is a fascination with China's command and control environment and economy and how the Chinese government can snap its finger and make things so. And yet 
here we see that in those situations, I, all of the the ooing and eyeing over the Chinese healthcare system originally uh, has shown that that it doesn't live up to hype. The Chinese healthcare system is not good. Uh, you had a bunch of people dazzled yesterday that China was able to build a hospital in 10 days uh, through slave labor and military. They were able to put up a hospital that's going to fall apart in a couple of weeks, but for right now can house people. It's not a good look for the communist Chinese, and yet there are a lot of people in this country who are infatuated with the Bernie Sanderses of the world and what they can or cannot do. When we come back, I want to actually talk about this failure of institutions because it actually does matter and is going to be increasingly a topic for our age as, well, we continue to discuss Iowa. Well, we still don't know who won the Iowa caucus. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Uh, things not going well for the Democrats today. Let, let me play uh, uh, some of, of Ron Brownstein on CNN from uh, earlier this morning. By the way, uh, Buttigieg is now walking back his victory claims. We'll get there, but, but it, first it's this. It's staggeringly embarrassing and really unacceptable for the Democratic Party. I mean, I think caucuses were teetering on the edge. We're down to, I think, three of them left. I mean, the idea that something this important the, the first contest in the Democratic race, which in the last four, you know, the last four Democratic contested primaries, the Iowa winner, winner has gone on to win. The idea that something that important should be conducted in such a haphazard way, there should be like a Sharpie rule, like any election in which people are writing with Sharpies at one in the morning uh, is not an election being run with sufficient precision uh, to, you know, for the consequences that we have. You know, Trump is meddling, you know, is kind of meddling uh, in royal waters. I mean, there is a portion in particular of the Sanders campaign, uh, not campaign, coalition, that and campaign maybe that is inclined to believe exactly what he is saying and he is and the president is simply trying to recreate the situation of 2016 when a reasonable percentage of sanders primary voters ultimately voted third party in the general election that may be unavoidable for democrats but they certainly compounded the risk of it last night they certainly did uh, you got to remember that uh, donald trump won by 70,000 votes spread over michigan wisconsin and pennsylvania and there were more than 70,000 voters from uh, from Bernie Sanders camp who voted third party or voted for Trump in 2016 as a protest against Hillary Clinton. Uh, now uh, you've got uh, Harry Inton from uh, CNN and looking at the polling and realizing there's a problem for the Democrats moving forward. And in terms of news for the Democratic Party writ large, the turnout was not particularly high. No, it wasn't particularly high. So if you go back to four years ago, what the Iowa Democratic Party has said is it's about the same exact turnout. That is not particularly good. It's not as strong as it was in 2008. There's supposed to be all this excitement around the Democratic Party wanting to beat Donald Trump. And this isn't the only data point that shows that. If we look at the special elections that we've seen so far in 2019 and 2020 and compared to the 2016 baseline, what we see is that Democrats are overperforming at a lower level than they did between 2017 and 2018. So when you take those two data points and put them together, maybe there's a little bit of enthusiasm problem for Democrats going yeah, forward. Demo yeah, what he's saying is that there was this massive turnout spike for Democrats in 2017 and 2018, and that turnout spike has collapsed now. Uh, they're they're burning out of the the energy. They're burning out of the rage. Well, uh, fueling some of the rage today is uh, Pete Buttigieg, 
who has gone on television, declared himself the victor, and it's not going over well for Pete Buttigieg now uh, nationally. I want to play you some of his interview from CBS this morning where he talked about this, and he's now walking it back, having said this first thing this morning. And let me set the stage for you here just so you understand. Um, Pete Buttigieg looked to be doing better than anyone expected last night in Iowa. It, it looked like Buttigieg would have come in third behind Sanders and Warren. That would have made Pete Buttigieg the establishment candidate. He would have trounced Klobuchar. He would have trounced. Uh, he would have trounced Joe Biden, and Buttigieg came in third. It appears he will have come in third. So he rushed to the cameras and declared victory, and he went on CBS News this morning also to declare victory, and it's not going over well. Now, first listen to what he said this morning. Yeah, we heard you say we're going on to New Hampshire victorious, but how can you do that when the official results are not in? Shouldn't you wait? Well, we... We have the results from our organization, and if you look at what we were able to do, uh, what happened last night, the fact that uh, this campaign was able to gather support in urban, suburban, and rural areas alike, in counties that Hillary Clinton won, counties that Donald Trump won, uh, we are are thrilled and, and absolutely consider that a victory. Absolutely consider that a victory. Well, that that wasn't the only thing he said. He also had uh, a little bit more of this discussion I played earlier on CBS. Uh, the, the Sanders campaign also saying they're essentially victorious. There are people online saying that your claim of using the V word is, uh, I think the hashtag is mayor cheat. Uh, in retrospect, do you think it was a little premature to take the stage and use the V word? No, I mean, looking at what happened last night, looking at all of the data that we've got, it was an extraordinary night. And uh, we are absolutely victorious coming into New Hampshire. I mean, this is a campaign that when we launched a year ago, people said, you're not a senator, you're not a national name. What what business does somebody from a mid-sized city in the middle of the country have running for president said we shouldn't even be here. And now here we are in the position that we are in uh, coming into New Hampshire for what we think will be another historic night a week from today. What do you say now to people who, when the results come in, are now questioning the integrity of the results? Well, again, the good news is there is a a paper process that can verify this. And, of course, uh, the way the caucus process works, uh, folks are are in the room. They uh, see how everybody aligns. So uh, it's verifiable, but still very, very frustrating. (laughs) Yeah. And you do need to understand that point here. Uh, This isn't a matter of hacking. In fact, let me read you uh, from Mark Eagerman. He's a tech guy. Writing about this, having spent 20 years working at the intersection of, of tech and politics, uh, bad app design plus no verification tools plus inadequate governance structures prevented a quick resolution. The caucus reporting app was freely available and seemed not to require a login. It merely required a pin printed on the final tally sheets that were unique to each of the 1700 caucus locations. That's the core problem. There was a long delay getting precinct leaders to connect, download the app and figure it out. That led to some people tweeting out pics of the tally sheets that included the pin number. And then campaigns like Pete Buttigieg's started doing this as proof of their success. Pranksters or bad actors were then able to download the app, upload new data for any precinct whose sheet they saw, overriding previous data. Someone probably claimed that Deval Patrick got 100% of the delegates in a large Des Moines site just for fun. The discrepancy instantly became obvious to Iowa State Democratic Party officials. The app almost certainly lacked adequate logging or access control, so all the officials saw were brazenly fake data and they had no idea why. They also didn't have a plan B, so they started getting calls from precincts. But once again, 
they liked verification tools and anyone with a pin could claim they had the data. Maybe someone tried to call in a report, alter numbers, or maybe state officials were just nervous. Nobody was empowered to make a decision, so they punted and are probably physically collecting and verifying the data today. Campaigns probably have a rough idea of the numbers, but who knows? That, I suspect, is, uh, the, is, is more accurate to what's happening than anything. And it was a complete meltdown. And there's a larger issue here that we should explore. And that is the, the, the failure of institutions. Uh, a- Amy Walter, who is a um, with Cook Report, she was with ABC for a while. She's a great political reporter, is noting that the, the bizarreness of all of this comes because the Democratic Party after 2016 decided they needed to placate Bernie Sanders and his supporters, though Bernie Sanders is not even a Democrat. They have allowed to compete on the ballot as a Democrat, a man who is not a Democrat. They have changed the rules to accommodate him. They have built software to accommodate him. And he has hijacked the Democratic Party for a campaign that has nothing to do with the Democrats. It is a complete failure of the institution to to serve the Democratic Party. In much the same way, Donald Trump in in 2016, if we're honest, he was able to hijack the Republican Party. If you surveyed, and I realize there are a lot of people who have engaged in revisionist history here, but if you actually were to survey uh, the Republican Party in 2016 in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, what you would have seen in the original trend lines of the Republican Party in those, those three states is that the people who were coming in initially to support Donald Trump were people who were new to the process and not Republicans. The Republican Party, if you will, was able to be taken over by Trump supporters who were not necessarily Republicans. And in fact, as we see in in 2018, for example, in Georgia, where you did not have a massive wave of Republicans turning out to help Brian Kemp or any other candidate, uh, these voters turn out for Donald Trump, just like they turned out for Barack Obama in 2012, but they didn't turn out for Democrats in 2010 and 2014. They turned out for Donald Trump in 2016. They'll turn out for Donald Trump in 2020, but they've got no ideological allegiance per se to the party. Now, that's good to some degree, except uh, we're making cults of personality out of political parties now. I mean, what does the Republican Party stand for other than a party that is designed to prop up Donald Trump? I mean, does anyone have any idea what the Republican Party stands for? You can say the Republican Party stands for smaller government, except the Republican Party is voting for trillion dollar deficits, which is only going to grow the government. You say the Republican Party is for cutting taxes, except again, uh, trillion dollar deficits, eventually taxes are going to have to increase. You can say the party is, is for deregulation, and, and maybe so, but that is that about the only thing it stands for is deregulation, corporate interests. So what about everyone else? The president is much more populist than he is for corporate interests or, or a conservative. You oftentimes hear the president's supporters say, what is conservatism conserved? We have a failure of institutions. There's a failure of Congress. There's a failure of the political parties. There is to some degree a, a failure of the presidency. Lisa Murkowski has announced she is not going to vote for impeachment, even though she's upset with the president. And in large part, she's not going to vote for impeachment uh, because of Elizabeth Warren's question to undermine John Roberts. Lisa Murkowski opposed witnesses. She wanted to call witnesses and she voted against them, she says, in large part because she could see Elizabeth Warren and others trying to undermine the judiciary. 
by making it all about John Roberts and forcing John Roberts to break a tie when he had no business breaking a tie. In fact, John Roberts came out and uh, last week and said he had no business breaking ties and would not break a tie. So Lisa Murkowski, to protect the judiciary, is essentially falling on her sword, blaming Elizabeth Warren, which, by the way, that, that reminds me, Elizabeth Warren, not a strategic genius. She screwed up with her uh, with her DNA test, and she overplayed her hand with John Roberts. She could have very well gotten what she wanted, which was a tie vote on witnesses, except she asked that question of John Roberts, putting John Roberts on the spot. He clearly did not like to be put on the spot, that basically what the Republicans were doing wasn't calling into question the Chief Justice's fairness and integrity. And even Adam Schiff was like, absolutely not. This is a ridiculous question. But it allowed Murkowski the excuse to say, I'm not going to go down this road. Because she's trying to preserve an institution. Our institutions continue to fail us. And in part, they're failing us because they are grasping for technocratic solutions to replace incompetence with competence. And they're not actually giving us competent solutions. People are losing their faith in institutions. But I I, got to tell you, what are institutions? What, What are institutions? Institutions are the people assembled. Ultimately, the institutions are us. And so the to the extent that institutions are failing us, it's we are failing ourselves. Now, I, I realize you're supposed to say things, oh, I trust the people. No, people are stupid. I mean, have you been to a Walmart on a Friday afternoon? People are stupid. And, and, and no offense, by the way, to people who go to Walmart. I go to Walmart as well, but good Lord. People are stupid. And stupid people do stupid things. And increasingly, we've got a a tuned out society staring at our phones. No one's paying attention. And we're outsourcing our problems to institutions to save us. And who are those institutions? They're us. They're people just like us, distracted, overburdened, uh, oversharing on social media, staring at their phones. They're incompetent because we're incompetent. So to the extent that our institutions are failing us, we are failing ourselves, and we now have less and less trust in our institutions. That is one reason I think the killer argument of the 21st century has got to be federalism. I I mentioned it earlier in the show, in the last hour. Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the welfare of the city in which you're in exile, and there you'll find your welfare. All of us are outsourcing our problems to Washington, D.C. We have avoided local solutions for local problems. We think Washington is going to solve everything. For a society of 350 million people, it is impossible for Washington to solve everything. And what we have with our great cultural fights of the day are the left and the right fighting over ideas of cultural homogeneity when, in fact, we are a heterogeneous nation of of, uh, mixed people, diverse people, diverse groups, diverse tribes, diverse clans, diverse societies, diverse cultures across a a massive nation. And the idea that Washington, D.C. can cater government to fix the problems of those 350 million people is preposterous. That, by the way, is why it's ridiculous to think we're going to have some sort of British healthcare system in the United States. The British healthcare system of a, a of a mostly white nation, not even half the size of ours, uh, cannot match us in our diversity and our ethnic backgrounds and our racial backgrounds and, and everything else. I mean, for God's sakes, Texas has about as many people as Canada has. To think that that uh, we can prescribe solutions in Washington, but we can't because the institutions are failing, and the reason the institutions are failing is the people themselves are failing. And we got this spectacle last night in Iowa 
because the people who were supposed to actually fix the problem and improve the situation themselves failed. No one wants to exercise leadership anymore. And frankly, we've made it more and more impossible to exercise leadership. And part of the problem there, honestly, if we're really honest about it, is transparency. Everybody's got to be so open now. There are some things you just shouldn't see. Parties do not need to have everything they do out in the open and exposed where people can nitpick. It's just, uh, it, it's it's kind of sad to see. Um, but it's also very funny to see when you see the collapse of the Democratic Party in Iowa last night. But what happened with the Iowa Democratic Party last night is not a problem of just the Democrats. It's a problem of institutions across the board. Oh, you know, I hadn't thought about this. Liam Donovan on Twitter, who's a, a an outside consultant, has worked within Republican politics. He, he just tweeted this out, a piece I would read, how the caucus debacle and the broader decline of Iowa's swing state status jeopardized the primacy of King Corn. You know, that that's one of the big issues here. It, Ted Cruz in 2016 won the Iowa caucus. And he did so despite campaigning against ethanol and had the entire state political establishment lined up against him. In fact, some of them coming out for Donald Trump uh, because of ethanol. Ethanol is a garbage fuel uh, that is a complete sop to farmers. Uh, ethanol wears out your engines. Uh, it, it's just it's terrible. Uh, wherever you can find ethanol free gas, you should use it. Um, and yet. It is a at this point a sop to farmers. Donald Trump now out on the campaign trail wanting to increase the use of ethanol uh, solely to get Iowa's vote. Iowa, Iowa, Nebraska, huge corn country. Well, one of the reasons that ethanol has become so prominent in in Trent's, in addition to Chuck Grassley being an institution of the Senate, Iowa senior senator is because of the Iowa caucuses. You go to Iowa and everyone pledges to, to make ethanol great again. That's why they came out after Ted Cruz so aggressively in 2016 is because he was pledging to end ethanol. And it, it, it's as the Iowa caucuses fade, there is less need to uh, to do it. And, and, you know, here here's the thing. If I'm really honest about it, I suspect that in four years we'll be doing this all over again. I suspect that in four years we'll be complaining about Iowa's first of the nation status again. You know, Iowa, it's, it's actually one of my favorite places in the country. There is a place in Iowa. Oh, what is it called? Vintage, I think it is. Um, it, it is you go in this place and they have the greatest fried. I, Iowa is known for its fried pork sandwiches. Essentially, they, they take a pork tenderloin pound it paper thin, bread it and fry it. And you get a tiny little bun and it's like an eight by 11 sheet of paper sticking out. Uh, and it's fantastic. It, it's, it's a crispy pork sandwich. And there's this place in Iowa, you can go in and it's in downtown Des Moines. I believe the name of it's vintage. I go there every time I'm in Iowa for the caucuses and you can get a, you can get every beer in the place has to be a beer that was produced in the 1970s. They're mostly, it's like Miller high life and, and Miller light and paps and, and the like. And then you get these fried pork sandwiches and tater tots and it's fantastic. It is fan. I, I mean, I eat there once or twice every time I go to go to Des Moines for the, this, for the caucus. And it's fantastic. The, the pig farming, the corn farming, it's fantastic. But I was deeply unrepresentative of anything in America at this point. It is it is a, an all white bastion uh, that is slowly demographically changing. There are greater diversity in states. Now, this is part of Joe Biden's problem is he's moving from Iowa to New Hampshire 
<clears throat> Iowa is the first caucus, New Hampshire the first primary, and it, like Iowa, is a bunch of lily-white liberals. you got to then pivot to Nevada, which is a caucus, and South Carolina, both of which have shown promise for Joe Biden uh, as more minority voters begin to participate. You've got to win minority voters to win the Democratic Party. And Biden potentially has an inroad there. But can he sustain it? I mean, Biden, the headline today should be that Joe Biden is wiped out. And the collapse of that app and the problem with the um, and, and the problem with the headlines over how the Iowa caucus turned out will delay any coverage of Joe Biden's collapse. And that works to his advantage. That's one reason the Sanders people are so mad. They're mad at the Buttigieg people and they're mad at the Biden people because they really expected to be able to take out Joe Biden. Remember, the significance of Iowa never really is who wins. It's always who loses. And Biden is the huge loser out of Iowa. Biden expected, frankly, to lose, even though they were saying he was going to win. Privately, the Biden team knew they hadn't put in the work in Iowa. And they've now gotten a complete pass on Iowa and the collapse of Iowa uh, because, well, everything's overshadowed by a complete cluster in handling the the app and the download. And this story is going to go on for days, even as the president takes the State of the Union tonight. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I, I would like to move on to other stuff, but the gifts just keep on giving this. This has just happened on MSNBC. It's in chaos. We, I mean, we know this it is does. a president that throws in chaos. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, Zerlina, about this is something that came out of our, our, our entrance polling. Um, and this caught my attention last night. This is um, this is uh, Iowa caucus entrance polling. Uh, here's the full screen. Thirty five percent. There it is right there. Thirty five percent of voters caucusing this year for first timer first time caucus goers 44 percent that was the number in 2016 um democrats have long leaned on president trump being a motivator Mm -hmm. for voters those numbers don't bear that out should should that concern democrats Yes, but I think for a different reason than a lot of folks probably will think. And maybe I'll be the only person to say this today. The the Iowa caucus is essentially the perfect example of systemic racism. 91% of the voters in Iowa are white. The reason why you see a drop in turnout, I'm just speculating here, it could be perhaps that white children are not in the cages. So when you're talking about the tangible pain that black and brown people are feeling, they feel a sense of urgency because their kids are being put in cages, right? And so if you have 91 wait, 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 who, who, who's being put in cage? Illegal immigrants can't vote, Zerlina. Electorate, that sense of urgency may not be reflected in the turnout numbers. I'm not saying that's the reason for this. No. It could be a factor. <laughs> When she says it, why so serious? Um, oh my good. Okay, let's 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 back this train up a little bit. Everyone knows going into Iowa, it is a seriously white state. Do you know why so much emphasis is put on Iowa, particularly among the Democrats? It is because of the Jimmy Carter uh, Ted Kennedy caucus. 
where Carter was stunned uh, by by Ted Kennedy showing, and it, it gave Kennedy some level of rebound out showing dissatisfaction. And ever since then, uh, both parties have put a lot of weight on Iowa, particularly the Democratic Party. Iowa is, yes, very white and so very unrepresentative of the Democratic Party. But Iowa is also a caucus state. and There are only three caucus states left. Uh, there's Iowa. There's New uh, Nevada. What is the other caucus state? Oh, hang on. This is going to kill me. What are the states with caucuses? Uh, there are three of them. There is Iowa. There is New Hampshire. And there is, well... Not not New Hampshire, Nevada. This is so unprofessional of me. I apologize. I'm going to get yelled at by my by my producer here for doing this. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, Iowa and Nevada are the two big ones. Uh, oh, uh, Alaska has one. North Dakota, Kansas, Wyoming, Hawaii, and Maine. Uh, the only ones that are seriously considered, however, are the Iowa caucus the, and the Nevada caucus because the other caucuses tend to take place at times uh, when there are Super Tuesday-style elections and so they get overshadowed. The reason the Iowa caucus is uh, significant is because it is a show of organizational strength. You have to get people to show up. They have to commit to you. They have to be able to make a pitch uh, on your behalf. For example, in in one Iowa caucus last night, uh, the designated Bernie Sanders person, their car broke down and they couldn't make it. And so one of the Bernie Sanders supporters stood up and he made a persuasive pitch for Bernie Sanders, arguably more persuasive than Bernie Sanders. It was essentially that that his brother has a disability. Bernie Sanders is the only candidate seriously fighting for Medicare for all. He he longs for that day. It would help his brother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and it was persuasive to people there. Uh, But it was a show of organizational strength. Because you have to put in a ground game. To win the election in November, you got to have a ground game. So if you can put in a ground game in Iowa for the caucus, it, it, it's a good show of organizational strength for you. That's why there's so much emphasis on Iowa. It is first, and it is a show of organizational strength. Uh, and if you can put both together well, like Bernie Sanders did last night, you'd have a very good night. It has nothing to do with the, the, the racism. The part of the problem for the Democrats is uh, there is a dissatisfaction of the candidates. Uh, th- there's nothing about the, this institutional or systemic racism having to do with lower turnout. Uh, the fact of the matter is it is low turnout in Iowa among the Democrats because a lot of Democrats aren't actually engaged with or excited by the candidates. 44% of voters who turned out in 2016 in the Iowa caucuses were first-time voters. Only 35% were last night because there is an enthusiasm gap between the parties right now. Don't bank on that for November. Democrats will be sufficiently fired up in November, but it is a measure of Republican excitement for the president right now that the Democrats are in disarray. And they wanted to find party unity. They thought they could rally around Joe Biden, and and Biden isn't pulling it off. And I've long maintained this is Biden's race to lose, and by God, it looks like he's going to lose it. Here's David Axelrod. Well, I mean, I think obviously Iowa being such a debacle is a huge story, but I think the biggest story is actually that the Joe Biden 
is coming in fourth or fifth place, right? And that the entire argument about electability means that you have to win. Now, that is Alexandra Rojas. That is not David Ashrod. He's about to speak. And he's not going to have a strong performance. And a lot of people will try to minimize, I think, the result of that. But the reality is, is that the Democratic frontrunner, the former vice president of the United States, we don't know. is not. Yeah, we don't know, but he's. We don't know. We have some intimation that he did very, very poorly. Right. And anecdotally last night. That's a fair assessment. And, and anecdotally no. last night, as we were watching the results come in, I yeah. think. Caucus site after caucus site, there was a dampening right. and enthusiasm. And I think the reality of what last night showed is that there are two progressives that have come out in the top two or three, and that it's incredibly uh, huge for this moment that the United States wants big ideas, right. big struggles. But look, the frustration of being factless, we're going to take a quick break here. It <laughs> Those poor people at CNN, they have been on air since like, it is daytime in Iowa. I have been there. I have done that. It is exhausting. It is really, it's also a lot of fun. There's one caveat, though, and I didn't mean to spend the entire time on this topic today, but it is such a big story today uh, with so much other stuff at play as well. We'll get into some of the Georgia news here in just a minute. One of the things that we need to appreciate, Peter Hamby from, of all things, Snapchat, used to be with CNN, uh, has pointed out, is that all of the major media locations in Iowa were in urban and suburban areas. So take Drake University. Uh, you're absolutely right that uh, Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders are going to do excellent in an academic setting. Um, Sanders and Warren did very well in Drake. Pete Buttigieg came in third at, at Drake University's campus. Of course, white academic liberals love the progressives and love having a gay millennial on the ballot. That's just fact. But what about the voters in rural Iowa? There are 1,700 precincts, and the media gave attention to maybe 20 of them. Now, they're disproportionately huge, so they will have a disproportionate impact. But there are a lot of rural Iowa counties that were completely ignored by the media. And what about them? And it looks like Joe Biden had a bad night in Iowa last night, and he probably did have a bad night in Iowa last night. And the the, le the level and depth of spinning from the Biden campaign suggests that they know it was a bad night and they need to move on very quickly. But we don't fully know what happened. We, we, we really don't have the full depth of what happened last night to Joe Biden. And we're not going to know for some time. Again, the president is giving the State of the Union tonight. And then he's going to be acquitted of impeachment tomorrow. And uh, then what happens the next day? The next day is the national prayer breakfast. And all of these things are going to overshadow the headlines coming out of Iowa. And that, that gives Joe Biden a lifeline. Now, uh, his team was pushing very hard from New Hampshire. They already moved to New Hampshire. Last night, before it was even over, he spoke to the crowd, got on a plane, flew to New Hampshire. And now his team is pushing very hard today. Joining me now, Deputy Campaign Manager and Communications Director for the Biden campaign, Kate Bedingfield. Uh, good morning, Kate. Why did your campaign send this letter? Isn't it exactly what President Trump wants to paint this picture that the Democratic Party is a mess and can't get its act together? No, of course not. We look, we have some real concerns about some of the issues uh, with the process last night. I think we obviously have all seen that the app failed. Precinct captains weren't able to report out their totals. Uh, you know, we obviously the phone system also failed. You heard uh, previous reporting about people not being able to call in their results, getting frustrated, hanging up. 
Uh, and then this issue of the paper trail, which uh, you guys were just talking about. You know, we don't have indication from the Iowa Democratic Party that they have the paper trail on, on each of these votes. And that's supposed to be, you know, the backup, the reassurance behind behind the app. So those things taken together, we think, raise some real concerns about the integrity of the process. And obviously, we believe that Iowa voters and voters across the country should feel uh, confident that the process was fair. And so we're asking the Iowa Democratic Party to address some of those issues before they release any official data. Given what just went down, in your mind, is this the last time the Iowa caucus should kick off the election season? <laughs> well, I, look, I mean, I think anybody who watched the process last night would come away with it with concerns. <laughs> you think? Man, they are out to kill the Iowa caucus. Hey, here's what, what actually they want, is Hawaii has a caucus. So in January, when the voting starts, why don't we do the Hawaiian caucus first? I, I would go to the—I've never been to Hawaii. I, I'd go to the Hawaiian caucus. I got a friend of mine who, who owns a big chunk of land down in Hawaii. I'll go crash at his place and, and watch the caucuses uh, for, from his place. And we'll watch the we'll watch the Democrats and the Republicans fight it out in a Hawaiian caucus as the first of the nation. And then it's going to take them all day the next day to book it back to New Hampshire for the New Hampshire primary. But at least you'd have a more uh, demographically diverse caucus for the first caucus than Iowa. The reality is that inertia is going to keep the Iowa caucus first, that they will beg forgiveness and they will try to get it right next time. But remember they screwed it up last time too. Now, all of this, there's a bigger, more transcendent issue. And there is one word to describe the bigger, more transcendent issue. That word is Bloomberg. Because Mike Bloomberg is not on the ballot in Iowa, and he's not on the ballot in New Hampshire, and he's not on the ballot in Nevada, and he's not on the ballot in South Carolina. He is waiting for Super Tuesday to make his move, and he thinks the Democratic field will be so divided that by Super Tuesday, he'll be able to, to have clearer standing. He is spending more money than all the other candidates combined on advertising, on social media, and on TV and radio. He's playing ads on conservative talk radio stations, on Fox News, on CNN, on ABC, NBC, CBS. His ads are everywhere. They are ubiquitous. My kids know who Mike Bloomberg is because they encounter his ads on, on YouTube constantly. He's not micro-targeting his ads. He is in broad strokes advertising and in broad strokes trying to make a name for himself. And he's getting attention. He's getting notoriety. And that's what he wants right now is that level of notoriety for his campaign. And he is about to pour massive resources into California. Put this in perspective. Iowa has 41 caucus delegates. California will have over 400 uh, caucus delegates. The campaign says it will have 800 full and part-time staff and 20 field offices in California by March 3rd. That's Super Tuesday. No other campaign is going to have the money to match that. California's got 415 delegates to Iowa's 41. Uh, his staff, who a lot of them work for Barack Obama, says we have staff in 35 states. There probably isn't a state in the country that's not going to get some of our advertising besides the first four. So a lot of people thought he was nuts in doing this. I did too, but he's spending so much money. Look at poor Tom Sire, who's actually a, a bigger billionaire than, than a Bloomberg, but isn't willing to do what it takes to win. Bloomberg is doing what it takes to win. He's pouring his money into a national advertising campaign. 
pouring his money in. And he's skyrocketing in the polls. He's ahead of Buttigieg in national polling. And Buttigieg is going to have to come up with a way to combat that. Bernie Sanders is the only one who has a message and base who can. Bernie Sanders is base. They are ideological warriors. And they're going to be opposed to a billionaire buying the Democratic nomination. And that will help Bernie Sanders. That's going to hurt Joe Biden. This is Biden's race. to It really is Biden's race to lose. He's the Barack Obama's vice president of the United States. He has uh, approval rating in, in the black community. It was 52% of black voters want Joe Biden. But Biden's running out of money. He's running out of runway. He's running out of time. And Bloomberg has an unlimited pool of money. He's not even taking campaign contributions. He's got billions of his own money to spend. And he intends by God to spend that money. And that's going to shake up the race. It's why Iowa doesn't really even matter this year. Because Bloomberg, again, he's not in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina. Those are the first four states. He's not in any of them. And now, by the way, the Democrats have altered the debate rules so Bloomberg can get on a debate stage. Where Cory Booker couldn't, Kamala Harris couldn't, Tulsi Gabbard couldn't, Andrew Yang couldn't. Uh, They've been able to to shape the rules to prevent the diverse candidates from getting on stage to make it an all-white panel. And now that these people are dropping out, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll let all of them come on, including Mike Bloomberg, who will be on stage for a debate in California. And we'll get all sorts of eyeballs watching him. It's going to be impressive to behold. And it's also going to be bad for all the other candidates it might actually wind up being really good for Donald Trump. Uh, I want to go here uh, right now, uh, and it, it pains me to have to, to do this. Uh, today is World Cancer Day, and it comes the day after finding out uh, that Rush Limbaugh has lung cancer. And I want to tell you guys that a lot of people... <clears throat> use the word friend, and I actually do mean it. He has been a mentor for me for a very long time. Uh, Before I got into talk radio and was running redstate.com, Rush was a huge encouragement. We got to know each other when I was at Red State. We met for the first time at CPAC years ago when I was at Red State. He knew I was going to be there and reached out and said he'd love to meet. Uh, Met him, met Catherine uh, at at CPAC. It's been years ago now, and... I remember one night in in New York City, I was very frustrated. CNN wanted me to come work for CNN, and Fox News wanted me to go work for Fox. And and I got competing very good offers and was very frustrated and and really felt caught in the middle and and competing agendas from people. And I just I sent an email randomly to Rush, venting uh, about the conundrum. And he wrote back and said, I will I will give you advice. And we had a, an email exchange. He doesn't talk on the phone very much for obvious reasons. And we had an email exchange uh, that went on for a while that night, and he convinced me I needed to go to CNN. And I literally wound up going to CNN because of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, he said he thought it would do me good to get out of my bubble and comfort zone and essentially uh, go behind enemy lines uh, to, to be a conservative on CNN. And he, he trusted that I would not lose my way at CNN. And three years later, when Roger Ailes was luring me to Fox, Rush was there and, and saying, go. You, you had your time behind enemy lines. Go go enjoy the comfort of Fox now. And I did. When I fell into talk radio, Rush was the guy who guided me in talk radio, uh, who gave me great advice, uh, some of which I, I can say publicly and some of which I can't. And I filled in for him for a number of years. And he, he and his whole staff, they are wonderful, wonderful people. 
Uh, I think the world of Rush, uh, we go weeks without talking and then we'll have bursts of email exchanges. We typically are, are trading emails throughout Apple events, uh, Russian. We, we, we maybe have been known to race each other to get an iPhone. Uh, he typically beats me. Of course, he has staff who can do it. It's, it's just me doing it, and he makes sure I know that. Um, but I, I just, I, I am, I hate to hear this news. My wife is battling lung cancer right now as well. And, uh, having two people in my world going through that terrible disease is something. And, uh, I would just encourage everybody to pray for rush. And I realize that some of the stations I'm on will not be going to him next. And, and some of them will, but I'm going to make this segment about rush because he actually is a friend and mentor. Uh, and not as good a friend as I wish he was, but a better friend than he, he needed to be. And he's always been there for me, uh, to answer my questions and, and let me pick his brain and give me good career advice, uh, and and advice on other topics as well, including advice on golf. And I would just pray that the God who raised us from the dust of the earth and stitched us together in our mother's wombs would reach out his hands and heal him and sustain him and his family and his friends and loved ones and his colleagues and those who work with him and get them all through this time and give him the peace that transcends all understanding and sustain him when he's worried and lift him up and heal him. But God's will be done in this and let Rush feel the presence of so many of us who are praying for him. He really is just a, a, a phenomenal, warm, and caring person, and nobody does it better than him. And I would not be doing what I'm doing but for him. I really do very much owe my career to him. Uh, he, the advice he's given me over the years has been priceless. And so I am definitely praying for him and hope you guys will as well and absolutely wish him the best. And I will talk to you all tomorrow.